So we're working our way through the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 9, and Rick told you last week, and next week it will be a very difficult passage for Travis to preach. And I appreciated that setup, Rick, because it really took all the pressure off of me all week long. But, but one of the things that you want to do when you're reading Scripture is it's difficult to read passages just all by themselves, right? If you, if you just grab out a couple of verses and you look at this and go, wow, that is really hard, then probably what you should do is you should back up and look uh, at the broader scope around it uh, to give you some context on what's going on and why is this passage here. Because understanding why the passage is there helps you understand the passage quite a bit better. And so we're going to back up into chapter 8, and we're going to look at the promises in chapter 8 because they're way more fun than chapter 9 is. And so we're going to spend as long there as possible Uh, just encouraging you with the promises in chapter 8 before we look at these difficult verses in chapter 9. But but listen listen here to this, or if you want to follow along, you can in in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do, not what, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the promises written for us in chapter 8. That no matter what we are going through, over and over and over again, he says, it is sure, it is sure, God's promise to you is for sure. There is nothing that can stand against you when God is for you. Those are great promises. We cling to those promises. We rehearse these things over and over again. These are some of the most famous verses in all of the Scripture that these promises are to God's people and we can cling to them even when we feel trouble in our soul, even when we feel trouble in our body. We can cling to these and go, God is with me. Whatever may happen to me, however I may suffer, ultimately my hope is in Him. And we have already addressed in chapter 8 and in chapter 3 and in other places that we don't deserve that, right? One of the things that's a challenge with these promises is we go, wait a second, I don't deserve those promises. God loves me. God is for me. God has sent his son to die for me. But, but I know that I have sinned because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't deserve these promises. And Paul says, that's okay. Because God, out of his mercy, offers his son, sent his son to die in your place so that you might be saved. So that these promises may be extended to you and you may cling to them even though you don't deserve it. So these promises are for sure. But now Paul raises another concern. And this is his other concern. Does God actually keep his promises? Does God actually keep his promises? If we rehearse all of these promises in chapter 8 and we get really excited about it, Paul asks this question, but does God actually keep his promises? Because you might accuse him of not, right? He says he's rehearsed all of these promises in chapter 8, and then last week we looked at the first five verses of chapter 9, where Paul lamented that Israel was not on the inside of these promises, that these promises were not extended to all of Israel in the way that these Gentiles and Greeks are receiving them. And he's lamenting this and going, I feel so badly for my brothers, for the fellow Jews, for these Israelites who are outside of God's grace. He said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. This is immediately following all of those great promises we just read. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is quite a statement. That's quite a statement. Because these promises are, are, are put out, and, and Paul says, but the, but the, thing that really, um, the thing that really is hard for me about this is that my fellow Jews, these Israelites, to whom are, if you listen through these things, to whom are, uh, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. That's who they were given to, right? They, they, the promises were given to Abraham. Come, Abraham, come away from your father and your homeland and come to this new land that I will show you and I will bless you and make you into a great nation. The promises were given to Abraham. And then they were given to Isaac. And then they were given to Jacob. And then they were, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and the promises were given to the nation of Israel, from whom, from the patriarchs, had come the Israelites. And all these promises were to them. And Paul is going, so that begs the question, if we are receiving these promises and going to cling to them, what about the Israelites? They had promises too. The Israelites had promises. There was the promises, the covenants to Abraham. There was the promises, the covenants to Isaac. There were the promises, the covenants to Jacob and to the Israelites. And what about them? Now they're outside of God's promises. What chance do I have? I'm a Gentile. I'm not born into that. How can I trust that God's promises to me are sure if it doesn't seem as though the promises to God's people, the Israelites, were sure? Now they find themselves on the outside. This is a major issue. I mean, when we read through this and we get to, to this, it doesn't seem like that big of an issue to us because we don't really identify with the Israelites. They're like over there. Different culture, different place, different nation, across an ocean different time period that we don't even think about most of the time. But what Paul is, is saying is, having given you all these promises and have, having lamented that this is by the grace of God and many of his brothers of the, is, among the Israelites are not receiving this promise, then he has to reassure us that these promises still will not fail, that God does in fact keep his promises. So in verse 6, it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Don't think that. Okay, I recognize that it is tragic, it is sad that not all of the Israelites have received the promises, but do not think that it is somehow because God does not or cannot keep his promises. He does and can and will. God will keep his promises. It is not as though... The word of God has failed because not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. You go, 
Wait, what? Not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel? My kids are Tatamas. They're all Tatamas. That's how that works. What do you mean those who descended from Israel are not all Israelites? Yes, they are. And you know, we do this all the time. We confuse this all the time. And put a label and say, okay, because there is this descendancy here, then they are what they, what I say they are. Well, I have labeled them. And we conflate and say, okay, God's people are the Israelites, and so all Israelites are God's people. And he's going, wait, no, that's not exactly how that works. The promises were to the Israelites, but not all of the Israelites are Israelites in the spiritual sense, in the having received the promises sense. Not all of the Israelites are God's people, although God, Israelites were called to be God's people. It is not as though the, the word of God has failed, for not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. And not all of the children of Abraham, uh, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He, he goes, let, let, me, let me give you a for instance. Okay? I know that it seems weird because all Israelites should be Israelites, and I'm saying that not all Israelites are, in fact, true Israelites in the God-blessed sense of the word. But think of it this way. Not all of Abraham's descendants were children of Abraham in the spiritual God promise, God's promises extend to them sense of the word. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. You see, Abraham had already had a son. Through Hagar, he had had Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the son of the promise. It was very clear. This is, no, Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Isaac will be the son of the promise. You're going to have a son, and that son is going to be through Sarah, not through Hagar. Right? The, the promises of God, Abraham and, and Sarah were going, God has extended to us this promise. He has said to us that you will have a son, and we don't see that happening because we're super old. We're way past the age of having kids. Sarah's like, yeah, my time is, I know, I have, maybe, maybe Hagar could have a baby for me, and that could count. And Abraham went, Okay. And so Abraham has a baby through Hagar, and God's like, What? No. That's not what I intended. You are going to have a baby. It's going to be through Sarah, and that will be the son of the promise. Okay, I'll bless Ishmael too, but he's not the son of the promise. One, 
So, so you have Abraham, and he has two sons. One is in, and one is not. That's 50%. Right off the bat. God had called Abraham away from his homeland and away from his fathers, told him that he would have all these offspring. They would be like the sand of the seashore. There would be so many of them. He would bless them as a nation, and through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. And immediately he has no sons. And then right after that, he has a son. And then he gets a a second son, and half of his two sons don't count. Okay? So the promise has nothing to do with Abraham and descendancy and lineage. It has to do with the promise. It has to do with God saying, this is to whom the promise is. It's not through Ishmael, it's through Isaac. And some of you are are going, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because Abraham and, and Sarah were really just trying to make this happen. They were really trying to fulfill God's promises for him, and that's not how it works. And so, of course, Ishmael is not a son of the promise. It had to come in a supernatural natural way through God. And so, of course, Isaac is the son of the promise, and Ishmael is not. That just makes sense. And so Paul continues. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so just when you thought Just when you thought you understood why the promise went just to Isaac and not to Ishmael, because there were all these mitigating reasons that excluded Ishmael from the whole promise thing. He says, and in the next generation, same thing. Two sons, 50% of them in, 50% of them not. One out of two get the promise. Well, maybe there were mitigating circumstances. And not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, they had one dad, Isaac. They had one mom, and in the Greek, um, through the same act of conception. There is no distinction between these two twins before they're born. None. None at all. And yet God goes, the older is going to serve the younger. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Yay! It's one of those great passages, right? That we're, we're looking at this and going, 
hang on, why? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, there were mitigating circumstances. That made sense with Isaac and Ishmael. But how come with Jacob and Esau? Why this? Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's why. Listen to it again. Before they had been born, and before they had done anything, anything, either good or bad, before they had done anything, so that God's purpose might continue, he elected the one, not because of works, but because of the one who calls what would the other option be? What's the other alternative? That somehow God waits to see what they might do and then says, good, one of them managed to do something right and my promise can continue. God's not going to leave it up to chance like that. In fact, when you read through the stories of Esau and Jacob, you can't really figure out why it is that he loved the one and hated the other. I mean, yeah, sure, Esau despised his birthright. That was a dumb thing to do. Not very winsome on Esau's part. But did you see all of the stuff that Jacob did? They called him the deceiver. Everything he did was a deception. This was not your model citizen, your model like poster boy for, for uh, follow, be like Jacob, one of God's chosen ones. No, God just said, you know what? My promise is going to be fulfilled through Jacob because I have chosen it that way. Because I have chosen it that way. Because if I waited to just wait by chance and see if my promises, I would make these promises and say, this is what's going to happen, and then wait for you humans to see if my promises are going to be fulfilled? Forget it. I'm not going to leave it up to you. Can you imagine if I, I made promises and I said, this is what's going to happen. My four-year-old will make sure that it's done. Uh, no. I'm not going to leave it up to him. God's not going to leave it up to us. He, he is going to make sure that his purposes are going to be fulfilled. His promises are going to be fulfilled. He will keep his covenants because it's going to have nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with us. So that he might demonstrate how great he is. You go, wait a second. But it's not fair, right? I mean, he blessed Jacob and not Esau. That's not fair. That's not really just that he just picked one. 
What shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? It's like Paul knew what your question was going to be. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on your part, on, on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have com compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Is God unjust? No. No, he's not unjust. But it doesn't seem fair. Because you had these two sons, and God picked one of them and not the other one. And that's not fair. That's not fair to Esau, really. And he says, okay, time out. Is there really, step back and think about it, is there really injustice on God's part? Injustice. By no means. For I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, because it doesn't depend on human will or exertion. It does not depend on human desire or effort or work. It doesn't depend on that. It depends on God who has mercy. Because if God was just just, both sons get nothing. That's the reality that we have so much trouble with. We look at it and go, that's not fair. God chose some. He didn't choose others. That's not okay. God is unjust if that's the case. Time out. Nobody deserved anything. No one deserved anything. God's not unjust. God is merciful. God is merciful to extend his grace to people who don't deserve it. But we, we somehow, even though we have been through half of Romans already, and it has been ridiculously clear, still get to this point and think that somehow we deserve it. And I say that because I'm reading this and I still struggle with it. And I still get to this and go, hang on a second. Really, he picks some and not others? Because even though if you asked me I would say, oh yeah, by grace alone, through faith alone, it's God alone. I would tell you that. If you asked me all the questions, I'd give you all the right answers. I went to seminary for that. But somehow, behind the words, in the assumptions, in the, in the back of my mind, there's something back there that still feels like, but really God, God owed it to me. Somehow, I, I deserved it. it. It was because my grandparents were faithful in walking with Christ. And so my parents were raised 
that way. And then my parents raised me correctly, and there are promises that say, you know, if you raise a child in the way that he shall go, he won't depart from it. And so then God really had to fulfill that promise. And so uh, I just happened to be in that case. And so there are other people, yes, that don't deserve it, but I actually do because... That wasn't a joke. <laughs> my, my grandparents did it right. My parents did it right. I have been walking with God since the time that I was small. And so there is somewhere in the back of my mind, in the places that I don't usually express, this belief that I have always been on the inside and have deserved to be. And when I read this, it challenges that assumption in the back of my mind. And it makes me stop and go, wait, it had nothing to do with me? It had nothing to do with my parents? It had nothing to do with my grandparents? It had nothing to do with my desire or my will or my work or my effort or anything? It was completely, totally, only God? Yeah. Completely, only, totally God. It had nothing to do with me. And I feel really vulnerable suddenly. Because there's nothing I can do about that. And I think that's exactly where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be in this place where we recognize it had nothing to do with us. You think you did it all right? You think you did it all wrong? That's nothing to do with you. God calls those whom he will call. God has mercy on those whom he will have mercy. God has compassion on those whom he will have compassion. And so, when we read chapter 8, remember, and all of the great promises that are there, all of the great promises that God will hold on to us and will not let us go, and that nothing can stand against God's chosen ones. It's because who's going to do anything? It's God who chose. I'm going to have mercy on him. I'm going to have mercy on her. Who's going to tell God, don't do that? There are those who are going to say, they don't deserve it. They, they, they don't deserve that. And God's going to go, I don't care. I'll have mercy on whoever I want. But they don't deserve it. They didn't earn it. Yeah, that's fine. Jesus did, took care of the earning it part. That's why I sent him. Because I know they don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. But I want to be just and the justifier. So I am just. And they're justified.
but they don't deserve that. I know, that's the Jesus thing again. I don't care if you think you deserve it or don't think that you deserve it. Those whom God calls, he is merciful toward. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And I was trying to think of what's the closest thing I can think of to this. What's the best illustration that I can think of about this? And the closest thing I could think of was adoption. There, are, uh, in, in my extended family, there is a lot of adoption. My uh, brother adopted two boys from another country. He and his wife selected a country selected two boys, and adopted them. Why? Because those boys really wanted to be adopted? Well, it didn't really have anything to do with whether or not they wanted to be adopted. Because they were really great boys? Well, my brother and his wife had no idea whether or not they were really great boys. They could, be, could have been really awful ones. It didn't matter. Why that country? I don't know. Why those boys from that orphanage in that country? I, I don't know. But those two, no longer orphans, but brought into a family where they have all the same love and advantages and provisions that my kids have. Why? my brother's a compassionate guy. It had nothing to do with them. And in the same way, God adopts his people. So that even, and this, this seemed so weird to me, I pointed it out last week, I'll point it out, point it out again this week, that when he's talking about Israel, the ones that the promises were, were to the Israelites in chapter 9, uh, verse 4, it says, and uh, they are the Israelites, to them belong the adoption. To them belong the adoption. It it, God adopts his own people. Because that's the way that he does it. What shall we say then? Verse 14 of chapter 9. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And I look at that and I go, time out! That's not fair! What do you mean he, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills? Why would he do that? Well, it said in verse 17, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up, so that I might show my power in you, and that my, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why are some chosen and some are not chosen? So that God's power and glory and name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. But what about those people that are on the outside? It doesn't have anything to do with them. It has everything to do with God. That his glory might be proclaimed. That his people, those who are called by his name for his purposes, might understand that it has nothing to do with them and they will see how great and gracious and glorious and merciful is our God in heaven. Because it has nothing to do with us. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've been hearing this all the way since chapter 3. It's the same thing. It's just that when you get to chapter 9, you start to finally understand what you read in chapter 3. You understood in chapter 3 that you didn't deserve it and you only get it by grace and by faith. But now what you understand is you only get it because God loves you. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We have been hearing this. Those of us who were born in the flesh, everybody, cannot please God. Don't desire him, will not desire him, will not serve him, will not follow him. And so God, out of his mercy, chooses some and says, by my grace, by my grace, and through the gift of my son, you will be mine. So that when we get down to the promises at the end of chapter 8, where it says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because it is God who justifies. That is our hope. And so when we read a text like this, we have to conclude that we must be humble. Don't you think? By the time we get done with all of this, we go, well, then it really has nothing to do with me. Which makes me incredibly humble. Which makes me incredibly thankful. Desiring to glorify and praise God that he would have mercy on me, a sinner. Mercy on me who did not deserve his righteousness. Who did not deserve to be called into his glory and loved by him. And yet he mercifully chose me. And it makes me cry out for those that I see that right now are on the outside of God's grace. God, would you have mercy on him like you have had mercy on me? So that I might proclaim who God is to them, but pray, knowing it has, it has nothing to do with them or with me or my presentation or how winsome I am in proclaiming Jesus to them, but everything, God, would you be merciful to them? And so the first most important thing that I must do when I see my kids, when I see uh, my parents, when I see other relatives, when I see friends or coworkers or people in the community that find themselves on the outside of God's mercy right now, all I can do is pray, God, would you have mercy on them? And so my call to you this morning is would you, if you have received the mercy of God and believe that Jesus Christ died in your place, would you rejoice with me this morning in the songs that we sing? And as you consider those who are outside of God's grace right now, would you beg with me this morning that God would have mercy on them? And if you find yourself here this morning and you go, what? I don't, I don't know if that applies to me. I don't know if I've received God's grace. Then I would call you to believe that Jesus, though you didn't deserve it, died in your place so that you too might be saved. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, as we go through your word, we begin to understand how gracious and merciful you are. When I consider that it has nothing to do with human will or exertion or work, but 
only on the one who has mercy. God, then, then you must get all of the praise and all of the glory. Lord, we ask, would you help us to be humble as we consider these things and meditate on them this week? Lord, we thank you for being merciful toward us and through your work displaying for us your mercy and compassion and glory so that we might know how great you are. But our Heavenly Father, as you have called us to be your children, when we did not deserve it, Lord, we see others around us who likewise don't deserve it and find themselves on the outside of your grace. And Father, we pray, would you reach them like you reached us? Would you reveal to them your glory? Would you begin to work in their spirits through the Holy Spirit? that they might see and understand and believe that Jesus is the only Savior and that you are the one true God. And Lord, we ask for this, being confident that you will fulfill all of your promises through Christ Jesus. Amen.